Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. Welcome to Pint Glass Preachers. I'm Tom, and with me as always are Gabe and Josh. So apparently my last intro went a little long. Apparently my brand of humor, something I'd like to call vindictive witticism, is not as appreciated as I thought. Of course, Gabe can ramble on for 45 minutes on obscure philosophers who are only read by individuals hoping to teach philosophy, thus perpetuating this philosophical circle. But I rant for four minutes about perceived injustices and I get pushed down. The minute you remind Gabe and Josh about their preposterous renditions of hymns they have sung, never relevant, or when they spend 15 minutes reminiscing about some seminary professor, exclusionary, or when they throw on their harnesses, push up their glasses on their nose, and scale that ivory tower, elitism at its finest, that, that we apparently have time for. But the minute I'd like to get a word in, they seem to forget that part of that part of pint glass history. That never happened. Tom, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. We stopped doing that in season two. Well, folks, and I'm saying that with a K, I'm not going to have it anymore. We're going to talk about this. Or, more precisely, we're going to talk about critical race theory. Welcome to Pint Glass Preachers. Ah, uh, woman. Ah, uh, woman, indeed. Are they? <laughs> or are they? Uh, uh, more on that in a minute. First of all, Tom, philosophy is important to more than just philosophers. The very fact you think the way you do, act the way you do, operate in the world you do, is a result of philosophy. Uh, I'm just trying to help us do it better. Ich denke, deswegen bin ich, Tom. Yeah, what he said. That in other news. Descartes, that was Descartes auf Deutsch. Is that right? It was, yeah. I think therefore I am. Yeah, auf Deutsch, yeah. Very impressive. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, hey, we're here. We are uh, fortunate. We have a guest with us again this uh, this evening, just so everyone knows we record at night. Uh, the one Reverend Marcus J. Lane is here. And uh, so I think it's only appropriate, Marcus, that you share with us right now what you're drinking. Oh, man. Uh, very excited. So I, I am excited. I get to be here for the Thanksgiving potpourri and the CRT. Oh, that rhymed. That was, I didn't even plan that. Rhymes for days so, from Marcus J. Lane. CRT and potpourri. Um, the Reverend so, of Rhymes. Can you bring that? Can we start that at ULC somehow? <laughs> um, but what I'm drinking is uh, Michigan's own Bell's official uh, hazy IPA tonight. Oh, I love that beer. Bell's mitten. So good. This is a great beer. It is. It is. Um, Josh, you want to go? What are you drinking? Okay, yes. So a shout out to my parents. You might think this is weird considering I'm sharing what I'm drinking, but it'll make sense in two ways. One, they drove four full days to come visit us for Christmas so that we were safely quarantined in a, a COVID-free visit. And on the way back, my parents cranked up an episode of Pine Class Preachers. And if you know anything about this show, I literally bring no fans to the table, no listeners, Nobody who actually cares. You know what the thing is? You take like a weird pride in that and you always say that. But honestly, I know for a fact, like half a dozen people that listen to the show because of you. Oh, so well, I'll rate. take that. You know what? Let me just take a moment and pat myself on the back. Thank you, Gabe. Go crazy. Uh, yep. But 
I asked my, my parents, I said, I said, hey, it's the first one in a long time. Is this going to be the last one for a long time? And there was no response except my mom said this. I just don't know how you guys talk about stuff for like an hour. And I said, mom, you're lucky because that's just the edited version. We really say. talk about stuff for like three hours. So, and there's about, there's about 6,000 texts before that. Yes. About that and nothing in between. So Right. So Christy Woodrow is no Janet O'Neill. However, with their visit oh here to the South, uh, the bourbon mecca of the United States, my dad really wanted to pick up some local bourbon. So we went to the old Chattanooga Whiskey Company, and this is their new flagship whiskey, Chattanooga Whiskey 91. So that's what I'm drinking tonight. Thanks, Dad. Nice. Thanks to dads everywhere. Uh so I'll go. It's a new year, new year to me, uh, which means I'm making poor decisions like doing Whole30 yet again. This is probably the third or fourth time I think I've done this on the show. Um, and so it is no booze for me tonight, though I am drinking something fermented. Okay, so then we don't care. Moving on. It's uh, Synergy Raw Kombucha Ginger Aid. I'm a big fan of ginger flavor in general, and uh, this is a, an excellent kombucha. So that's what I'm, I'm rocking tonight. Hermano Tomas. So go pick it up at your local Whole Foods. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the the father theme. I know in uh, the last episode I went on a huge a huge rant on on my drinks. Um, I'm actually drinking beer tonight because uh, my wonderful wife for my dad's birthday and for, kind of for my anniversary and for for Advent got us both me and my dad the uh, Costco beer calendar Advent calendar. Oh yeah yeah which was 24 German beers from Germany. Amazing. So I was going to be like, oh, I'm finally drinking beer. And now I've got something completely different that nobody's ever heard of. But it is Perlenberger Pale Ale. And it is not bad at all. So thanks, Perlenberger. I totally yeah. forgot that Advent was a German holiday. Weird. Well, it's a German holiday. Isn't it a Christian holiday? What do you mean? I'm just saying, why does the why does the Costco Advent calendar only have german beer there's beers from around the world why can't well, we, if if christianity is universal then why can't we celebrate the rich diversity of brewed beverages oh my gosh that's all i want to uh, know that's all i want to know come on no, costco think, costco you can do better and i'm really sorry guys we probably just lost them as a sponsor of pgp <laughs> but costco you can most certainly do better as the one who's been in charge of getting sponsorships for us i really i had him on the line and now that's what it's I over. do best, though. I literally it's cut over. the line. I cut ties. That's the whole reason we, we don't have sponsors. <laughs> um, dude, all right. So let's talk about a man, a woman. So on January 3rd, uh, the 177th uh, Congress was commenced. Uh, it began, and it began with a prayer uh, by Emmanuel Cleaver, representative from Missouri, uh, the Kansas City area. Uh, 117th, not 177th, forgive me. 117th Congress was opened, and he began it with a prayer. And at the end of the prayer, he said, amen, and a woman. Gents, how do we feel about this? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that that word was, was gender-based to begin with. I just here's, happened. Here's why you didn't know that, because it's not. <laughs> it's not. Oh, good. <laughs> Woo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I've, been on this, I've been on this high horse when it comes to etymology for a very long time now. And what I mean by that is, I, I don't think, with, with a few exceptions, right? Like when you've got, let's just say Spanish, where you have Latino and Latina, right? And there's like 
gendered terms. You know, when you look at a lot of languages, Hebrew in particular, like the masculine, feminine, and neuter cases don't necessarily designate gender. And so I think a lot of language operates this way, right? The the word for Holy Spirit in Hebrew, Kodesh, wait, no, Ruach, is feminine. Wait, isn't it? It's feminine. I'm yes. pretty sure it's feminine. Yeah, it is yeah, thank feminine. You. Same with Pastor wisdom. Josh, everybody. Yay, here we go. I'm just firing on all cylinders here, folks. Same with the word Sophia or wisdom. It's a feminine word, right? But we don't necessarily gender the Holy Spirit as female or gender wisdom as entirely or purely feminine, right? And so I think if we go reading into entomology of language through a 21st century critical lens, you like that? How I segue that into our I topic like that. for that tonight? That was really yeah, good. Yeah. Then I think sometimes we actually end up doing a disservice to the to the formation of those languages in the first place. And this is one such example. Perhaps maybe not. I mean, it's, it's quite negligent, obviously. Um, but to take the word amen, which just simply is a verb of assent, right? Let it be so. Yep. To That's try a Hebrew to... word for like surely. Right, right. Yeah. Just because in English it's amen or amen, that actually has nothing to do with gender. So let's yeah. not try so hard. I agree. Although, uh, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but I know we've talked and, you know, it's maybe not, well, this will be part of the conversation later too. Maybe it's not fair that we even talk about it, but like the whole Latino Latinx conversation uh, has always been a little weird to me in that like my Latino friends in Texas were like, yeah, I don't know why a bunch of white people want me to say Latinx. Um, but I also know there's different circles within the Latino community that would disagree with that. So uh, it, it ends up being a pretty interesting conversation as uh, we think about etymology and gender and language. Uh, this was not as funny a conversation as I thought it would be, but uh, nevertheless, no, serious real quick. Can I blame myself really for that? Did. I'm really sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Either way, uh, you know, to uh, to this uh, fine representative from the great state of Missouri, Representative Cleaver, um, you know, you're loved, but this was ridiculous. It's just silly. There's just no other way to put it. Can I can uh, I just and, throw one more thing in real quick? Yeah, please. As a disclaimer for not only our conversation tonight, but also on behalf of this, what do you what did you call him? He's not a senator. A, a He's a representative. Representative. That's right. That's right. Uh, folks listening to Pine Class Preachers, this is not an attack on Christianity. Okay, this is not like a militarization of language against the Church Catholic. So, yes, let's laugh at this. Let's poke fun at it. Let's go ahead and, well, just show it to be what it is. Just wrong. But let's not treat it as if this is like some intentional uh, attack on the church to undermine Christ. Yeah. I think I think what we can do is, why don't we just, I, I think if we could come together and maybe just sing a song, maybe we could open up our, our hernals and and sing together. And... <laughs> I caught what you did there. I was like, there's going to be a joke. Yep. And there it was. Hidden, there it was hidden in there uh well friends those those are our thoughts uh we are now all going to be the guys that make videos in our trucks wearing uh oakley sunglasses with um american flag bandanas affliction t-shirts affliction t-shirts with monster energy leg tattoos rhinestones on my iphone case and we're going to tell you snowflakes to toughen up all right no more of this nonsense a hey, woman no thank you this is america america so uh, with the... <laughs> what? 
no room for Mary's in here. All right. Uh, so with, uh, with that said, uh, we're, we're going to go uh, and head into our real conversation tonight. We're going to talk critical race theory. We've got Marcus here, world-renowned expert. Uh, he specifically asked us not to say that because he is in no way an expert, but he is a very thoughtful guy uh, and a well-read uh, guy. And so Who once read a book about this? <laughs> Chairman Marcus Lane. And grateful to have his voice with us uh, for this episode. So stick with us, folks. We'll be back after the break. It's pretty amazing you made that joke with kombucha on your breath. there was a song back in the day it might have been usher might have been someone else another r&b soul singer who had a hot track called this is my confession maybe it was dean was usher it was, it was usher. usher okay good it i was, was right usher. okay yeah okay so i need to take it back in the serious tone okay please so here's a confession that i have to make <laughs> shout out to usher he's from chattanooga by the way so the connection is, is he there. really yeah I had no idea. Yeah, he's For actually sure. a huge uh, philanthropic benefactor of certain neighborhoods in Chattanooga. So, yeah, there you go. Fun fact for the day. However, uh, over the last eight years... Are you, are you sure you're not thinking of my confession by Josh Groban? That's probably it. You got me. <laughs> over the last eight years, I have become a neo-Marxist critical race theorist, white hating something. And I'm so sorry that I can't even self-identify. I can't really attribute identification to the work that I've been about. I just don't know who I am anymore. But I, I know tell you, that that's I've... the worst kept secret in the world. <laughs> You're on. right, because it's actually pretty obvious. However, it is quite funny that we're talking about critical race Critical rice rice theory. Brown rice, white rice, jasmine rice, basmati rice. All rice matters, Josh. All All rice rice matters. matters. Wild rice matters, okay? No, but for real, though, getting into this conversation about critical race theory, it is pretty funny to me that I didn't know, like, uh, literally in the last 12 months, people have accused me of being a neo-Marxist, have accused me of being a critical race theorist, and I literally had to Google that term because I did not know what it meant despite the fact that my professional career up to this point has largely been devoted to racial justice. So I'm so glad that Chairman Marcus is with us this evening because I, I want to know what it means. Am I a critical race theorist? Am I a neo-Marxist? Am I undermining the very fabric of this great nation? If you're asking the question, I think the answer is probably yes. That's fair. That's fair. So, and, all right. Yeah. Good episode. Great episode, everyone. <laughs> Great job, everyone. Text in your comments or questions or reactions to me undermining the fabric of America to 612-208-6258. All right. So, so Chairman, Chairman Marcus, why don't you walk us through, let's let's give everybody a, uh, a working knowledge of what uh, what critical race theory is 
and please dumb it down for us. All right. So, um, so as as much as I'm being referred to as chairman or uh, expert, I'm I'm in no way an expert on this subject. Um, I just like to read. Um, that's about it. Um, five wing four. I'll just flex on them for a second. Um, that was an Enneagram reference for anyone nope. there. Ah, Sorry. Ah, <laughs> The, Sorry, the Enneagram Josh. ruins everything. Why do you have to bring this up? It ruins. Mm. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, but anyway, um, so I, I really kind of started doing some homework on, on this subject, uh, really kind of because I was asking the question. I was like, okay, everyone seems to be throwing out, particularly in conservative Christian circles, which I am a part of, um, by all admission is is like oh critical race theory critical race theory critical race theory and is being thrown out as this sort of boogeyman term um as, as this thing that is the fundamental threat to the american way of life and and frankly not only that but like a fundamental threat to christianity um so was like okay like what is this um what is critical race theory um and so i would I guess sort of the most basic definition that I would give is that critical theory in general, uh, particularly we're kind of talking about critical race theory, but critical theory um, is, is really kind of a framework uh, for how we examine uh, the development of basically the development of society. Right. So it's a framework for considering, right. How we, how we consider the development of laws, how we consider the development of what is normal, right? How did what's normal become normal, um, right? It's, it's this framework for considering what, it, what is the historical development uh, of our society. Um, so like if you Google critical race theory, the basic Wikipedia definition you'll get on it is critical race theory is a theoretical framework in the social sciences that examines society and culture as they relate to categor categorizations of race, law, and power, right? So it's just sort of this examination of how have different races been treated in the history of our country um, by our laws and power structures that, that are at play. Okay. The way and you, I, I like how you said it, kind of the, the basic Wikipedia way. The the way that I'm hearing it in the news, the way I'm hearing it in general, is that the way I've been taught about our history, about our power structures, about our our society, has all you know. We think in America here, it's all apple pie and and amazing awesomeness, and all the bad things are in the past. But, but really, if we really start examining things, a lot of the laws that we have, a lot of the power that we have, um, a lot of the things that we don't give second thought to are really a result of, uh, of some pretty racist things, some, some laws that were meant to oppress others, and that our history isn't as rosy as, as we think. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's relative. I mean, I would say all in all, like that's relatively fair. Um, I mean, I think I think critical race theory is an attempt to honestly critique the history of of our own country um, and the laws that are in place. So um, then, so then, how is it different than just 
history, right? Or sociology or philosophy, like in, in a lot of other ways, like we, we look at the history that has been taught in our schools for a couple of centuries now, right? And we're just like, yeah, that's history. We don't say that's uh, Euro or uh, American centric theory, right? Or Eurocentric theory. We just simply call it history. So then what is the, the distinction or the separation between still like utilizing and still leaning on factually historical documents and texts and saying perhaps what we've been taught differs from a, a much more holistic historical account? Like, why yeah, can't I, I say, hey, here's history from the same textbook or from the same texts um, that can go without the the actual designation as critical race theory or critical theory in general? Yeah, I, I think I mean, I think probably the the difference that you would find, you know, for someone who's like pro critical theory all the way, um, that person would would likely you know, say that that these things are, you know, they're systemic, they are intentional, um, and, and they still persist today. Um, where someone who's maybe anti critical theory, uh, might suggest, yeah, there's some checkered history uh, that we have. But mostly, it's been a history of progress toward greater equity um, in, in our country. Um, and, and, and I think, and, and I think then in, in addition to that, it, it would largely be that they would, I think, largely think like, and, and kind of, this is, I guess, language probably that I've, I've gotten more probably from you, Josh, than any other homework that I've done. It would be because more. Apparently I'm a critical race theorist. So I'll, I'll just admit to that. <laughs> I guess. Out. I mean, um, on, on this working definition, I for sure am that. So go ahead continue. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I mean, but anyway, I mean, I think it would be, it would be folks who are maybe a little bit more advocates of, of the kind of colorblind, like we just want to be colorblind, right? We, we just want to treat people as people. Um, and, and while that's maybe, noble to a certain extent it i think maybe ignores a lot of the way that our history shapes reality for many americans um and so i think if i can go into it i i think like probably the simplest way i would summarize this is like as i think about it it's like it's that quote at the beginning of braveheart where it's like history is written by the victors i don't think that's the exact quote but it's like along those lines right and so what critical race theory, at least as far as I can tell, seems to be doing is saying like, hey, that is actually what's happened. Uh, and so we need to understand our history and our society now through the lens of different experiences, uh, like through the lens of the different experiences, depending on who you are as a person, uh, in particular, oftentimes uh, through your racial identity. So how is your racial identity determined your experience of this society and your experience throughout history. So it's saying like, history is not neutral. It's saying, how can we understand it through these different lenses of experience? Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty fair way, pretty fair way of, of describing it. And I think it's worth noting, like, you know, so like critical theories are an incredibly broad field. Um, you know, yeah. it, it's not this sort of like monolithic group think where everyone who you know, readily claims the label of I'm a critical theorist, 
automatically thinks the same. Um, like, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I mean, one of the if you go out there and, and, and Google this as I did, I mean, one of the one of the criticisms that you'll read right away is that it's it if you're a critical theorist or if you're not, it's absolutely and I mean, I guess pun intended, it is an absolute black and white. If you're a critical theorist, race theorist, it is all white people ever and today and forever are evil and all people who are of color are not and everything that has happened is bad or it's the flip side no it's not as bad as you thought that all happened a long time ago we've been we've been puppies and rainbows since at least the civil war you know and so it i think that's one of the criticisms and to your point this is such a broad thing it is not just one thing. Well, and, right. and no, here I, I make a correlation, and l I'm curious to see how this lands with you guys, right? Or even with you listeners to this episode. So the Industrial Revolution, generally seen as a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, man. I don't think it's a clear dichotomy there. And, well, in terms of, like, technological progress... No sure. one's going to say yeah. it was a bad thing. And right? economic progress. Economic right. progress, right? So, like, historically, the Industrial Revolution is cast, by and large, in an optimistic or a positive light, right? From yeah. an economic, technological standpoint. Um, and an and effect or an affect of the Industrial Revolution was child labor, where, like, children were overworked, maimed, killed, etc., right? And so right. now we can look back and say, hey— there were some positive things about the Industrial Revolution, but we also like maimed and killed a bunch of kids, and that was jacked up and wrong. So we and it and it's and it started pollution too. Right, right, you know, right, right. So like for me, there's yet another sort of level of dissonance when we look at specifically critical race theory, to where we're unwilling, by and large, as a society, to say, here's a progression of European colonization that's typically cast in a really positive or optimistic light in terms of economic progress, technological progress, uh, philosophical progress, perhaps. But then the second we say, oh, here were some really messed up like byproducts outside of slavery, all right? So like, let's forget mm -hmm. the, the, the transatlantic slave trade, but there are still lasting byproducts, negative byproducts and effects of European colonization. Then immediately it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You hate white people. You hate the last 400 plus years of history. You are now America, like trying to undermine yeah. everything, right? And yeah. so for me, the goal is always let's have some academic integrity. Let's have some philosophical integrity. Let's yeah. have some historical integrity and then enter into the conversation to say, yeah, certainly there were some advances that benefited us all as a result of these things. And yet at the same time, those advances and those benefits perhaps came at the expense of a larger sociopolitical or even personal traumatic like legacy. I, I, I love what you, I love how you brought up in the industrial revolution because it, it is a, uh, it, it is a, it's a thing. It's not a person, right? I think we can all like, it's pretty easy to be like, Oh yeah, it did. It did cause pollution. There was child labor and there was some there were some things about it that were bad. We got some good things out of it. We can, like I think, uh, most people can get on board with 
with looking at that in a critical way, right? But to your point, as soon as we turn it to people of color, whoa, it just back away, we can't talk about this. Yeah. And I think it, I think that's just a really interesting thing. And it, maybe it's because it's people versus factories and things, or I don't know. Well, Tom, I think, I do think it's helpful that you brought up kind of that distinction because I do, if, if you actually look at the majority of literature kind of in the, the critical race theory field, it does deal more with things, so to speak, than people in terms. Of, and, and what I mean by that is, is it deals largely with systems and laws yep. and power structures and things like that. And it asks the question, how did this develop? How did, how did this sort of just assumed given come into place um and is it is it good it's maybe good for some it's maybe not good for other people um and and so i think it, it really you know so so the critical critical theory by and large is not trying to say every single person you know every single white person is racist in the sense of you have you know deep-seated hatred toward non-whites um but it's it's rather trying to critique a system that has where where the distinction between races and the disadvantaging of races has been sort of part and parcel to it well and i think that's why i think that's chairman folks yeah and i and i think that's that's a really good distinction because when we talk about that we live in a society that has laws, that has structures, that has um, just constructs that that are either the product of or still remain in you know in a place that that oppress others or were born out of racist ideas or things like that. Um, to be able to separate the two and say these things exist, we live in that society. We have to understand that you know open our eyes to that. That doesn't make us racist. It doesn't make us terrible people unless we're going to turn a blind eye to it, unless we're not going to be part of the solution. I think I think that's an important thing. And I think it goes to, I don't know, this is the way I felt, Josh, you and I have talked about this, but sometimes I feel like the rhetoric around this, and maybe this is my own defensiveness or whatever, and, and a lot of other people's defensiveness is it, it it does seem sometimes like it's more attacking me. I'm like, I didn't have anything to do with the industrial revolution. I yeah, I drive a car and that's great, you know? Right. But like, but like, don't attack me. Okay, yes, I live in a society with factories. I get that. I'm trying to do something about it, you know. And I think that's where people that's where people pull away from the conversation or get really defensive or get really angry about it is because it, it, it seems like a personal attack when they view themselves as, as not. Right. Racist. So yeah. perhaps a helpful analogy for our conversation, and, and this is not mine. Um, I claim no proprietary um, insight in this. It's actually from the Racial Equity Institute based out of, I believe, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, but anyway. You know, Charlotte. Yes. The birthplace of anti-racism. Yes, that's right. So they <laughs> you, they, they literally have this really, really helpful analogy when talking about exactly sort of what we've been dancing around for the last few minutes. Um, and they call it the groundwater analogy. 
all right? And so when you think about racism, some people like to use uh, the term pollution, okay? This is all the, the toxic air that we've been breathing in, so it's going to affect all of us, our bodies um, and how we move about, right? That's cool, but it doesn't really get to the heart of, of really what the issue is. To Marx's point, systems and things, and to what you just described, Tom, right? Taking the, the personal um, defensiveness, the personal fragility, the personal attacking, whatever you want to call it, and, and removing it to say, what can we look from a an actual, um, you know, systemic, sociological, philosophical, theological, scientific, you know, perspective, right? <coughs> Pulling us to gods. But the groundwater gods. analogy is this, right? If we're talking about racism, um, let's just say that, well, what's a popular lake in in the Michigan area or the, or the Minnesota area? Is there like a really lake famous Michigan. lake? Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan. Very... There we have it. So yeah. say all of a sudden... Gabe, Tom, and Marcus, you guys are just walking around Lake Michigan looking for some Petoskeys. Yeah, right? there you go. See, my cultural relevance is shining through. You're so, what's up, my fellow youths? That's right. <laughs> and you see um, a dead fish while you're looking for Petoskey. Oh, man. Right? You're going to be like, oh, what happened to that fish? You go back home. And Josh you come out the next day. Stop. Yeah, oh, I muted myself. Too. <laughs> it was a really good mute, too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now it wasn't a good mute because you just, well, anyway. Okay, so I see the dead fish. I go home. Right. You come back the next day. You see 10 dead fish. And you're like, ah, oh, this cool. is really weird. What's going on? You leave and you come back next summer to Lake Michigan, perhaps to Camp Arcadia. Hashtag Chip May. Hope you're listening. And all of a sudden, you just see thousands of dead fish on the shores of Lake Michigan. Right. You're going to say, man, something is going on with this fish, right? And so the analogy works this way. We First thing that when we talk about things like racism, we look at the fish and we say, what's wrong with the fish? Why are they dead, right? Why have they washed up on shore? They must have done something to deserve this. They must have done something wrong. They ate the wrong food, whatever. And we realize, oh, if it's not just one fish or 10 fish, but an entire lake of fish, perhaps it's the water itself. So then we go and we look at the water and we say, okay, let's test the water. Are there pollutants in the water? What's going on? Something must be wrong with the water. So the fish is the individual. The water is, say, you know, just kind of like what we can see, how we're interacting as, as people with each other, right? Mm -hmm. And you're looking at the water and you're looking at the fish and you're like, something's wrong with the water. But they're like, wait a second. Where is this water coming from? Well, and it's you... all Gary's fault. All That's what it is. Gary. In this specific example, it's Gary's fault. It's Gary. That's his Gary, friend, Indiana right? is the reference there. Yes. Not a guy named Gary. Yes, Just no, Gary, keeping Indiana. everyone yes, thank up you. to speed. Appreciate that. So essentially to distill it down and shorten it, because I've already gone too long on this, is they mm -hmm. say, let's not look at the fish because that's how our social services tend to work, right? You're poor and you're a person of color. What's wrong with you? Why are you sick? Why are you homeless? Why are you dying? Let's not even look at the lake itself. But instead, let's look at the groundwater, which feeds the lake which is ultimately feeding the pollutants, which is then hurting or and or killing the fish and causing them to come on shore, right? And so when we look, typically, when we enter into a conversation around racism, we, it's this like interpersonal, I'm walking on the shores looking for Petoskeys, here's this dead fish, there's, there's immediately a dichotomy between, or a binary between the two of us, right? And then, well, you know what, guess what? I need to help the fish. So I'm going to think of ways that, that I can treat the water or I can warm the water or add more food to the water or make sure these poor fish just don't die. But what I'm unwilling to do or typically doesn't happen is to say, let's look at the groundwater, which feeds the lake, 
and says, what is it that's actually introducing toxins or pollutants into this body of water, which is then killing some of these fish or all these fish, right? And I think that's a really helpful analogy that they've come up with because it moves beyond the interpersonal. It moves yeah. beyond even like social services or saying like, maybe it's just because I, Josh Woodrow, as a white dude, have more money, so I'm going to help out the poor black kid in the hood, right? To then saying, perhaps there's something that's been in the groundwater for such a long enough period of time and to such an extent that it's actually created a lake in which kills off either some fish or all the fish. But if the fish just graduated high school, got a job, and didn't have a child out of wedlock, he would succeed. That's it. That's exactly it. That's... You're right. It's all, you know, but I mean, I know you joke about it, but right? But that's typically the Well, that's literally right? the, the exact argument put... I hear all the time. It is. It's put on yeah. the fish. But yeah. we never yeah. look at the groundwater which feeds the lake, which then impacts the fish, right? Yeah. And the other question then remains, so then like, how are some of us who are swimming in the same lake unaffected doing fine why aren't right. we up on the shore dead as well you know right. so right. i don't know that's a really helpful analogy that i picked up from them because it really gets beyond some of these like initial roadblocks i guess to this conversation where people are going to get defensive or to say like hey it's either like we got to get rid of the whole lake much less you know the whole planet because it's all of a sudden turned into a personal attack on me it's like no let's look at that thing kind of like what you said earlier marcus yeah i, I have think uh... I... I'm going. Uh, I have some critiques and thoughts on that, but I think it's actually be helpful to get at them if we go through some sort of more like detailed understanding of uh, critical race theory. So we kind of, so sorry, Marcus and Tom, but I'm gonna move us forward. Uh, we have our like sort of working definition of critical race theory here. Uh, so now like I, we're, I'm gonna, we're gonna use a blog from a, a Christian apologist to kind of help guide us. The guy's name is, is Neil Shenby. Uh, he's a really actually a, kind of impressed by his his bio. He's a really thoughtful guy. He has a PhD in uh, what's it called theoretical chemistry or something, which I didn't even know was a thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, theoretical chemistry, he got at UC Berkeley. So very sharp guy, but is a oh, homeschool dad now. liberal, UC Berkeley. Well, I mean, you'd think that's actually where he became a Christian. Um, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. I'm sorry. So, okay. At any rate, uh, he's a homeschool dad now who also dabbles in apologetics and really is pretty thoughtful. Although... I think I can say I don't agree with everything he's written on critical theory, uh, but I think he gives us a helpful outline to walk through. So let me just start. He has five premises, so let's just go through them real quick. So uh, his first premise in def in kind of like unpacking critical theory is this. Um, our individual identity, who we are as individuals, is inseparable from our group identity. Okay, our individual identity, who we are as individuals is inseparable from our group identity. He would say that that is a premise of critical theory. Um, and so that actually to go back, maybe I'll keep going uh, on that for a second to go back to Josh, your fish analogy. I think that would be a, a critique that someone may have of that analogy is to say like, well, first of all, people aren't fish, right? So like, I like, and that's not just to like be facetious, but it's like, people do have moral agency Whereas a fish does not have moral agency. Right. And, and so, sheep also don't have moral agency, but we love to follow the good shepherd. Awesome, Josh. Uh, so at any rate, <laughs> thank you for that uh, non sequitur. So um, that isn't a non sequitur. That's no, you're right. It's not. What is it? Well, that literally annoying... is a perfect corollary to what you just said in terms well, of biblical theology. Yeah, sure. Okay. So. At any rate, um, get off the analogy in it. <laughs> yeah, let's get back into it. So the thing would be like, 
the the premise he's highlighting of critical theory uh, is that group identity it precedes or, or that we can't like our individual identity who are individuals is inseparable from our group identity so again I, I guess I'd be curious you know your thoughts on that and your reactions to that is that true uh, can we affirm that as Christians uh, should we and is that even a fair thing to say about critical theory? I think it is, but I could be wrong. So let me just, I, I guess my, my initial reaction to that is like, I would say, I mean, is there, like from, from like a critical theory lens, like whether, whether that should be how things are, like that, that one's individual identity is inseparable from their group identity, the critical theorist would say, if you simply examine history and you examine, like, for example, I mean, you just examine the way blacks have been treated in America, whether or not that should or shouldn't be the case does not change the fact that it has been the case. Right. And so it seems, I mean, again, it seems to okay. me as, as, as Shenvi is kind of making, you know, kind of this, you know, sort of talking about these you know these different premises of of critical theory it's like well who who's responsible for the whole individual versus group identity thing the critical theorists would say like that's like that's our history is we have lumped people into groups based on the color of their skin and treated them certain ways and drafted different laws and policies that affect people differently based on the color of their skin, whether you think that's good or bad doesn't change the fact that it happened. Hmm. Okay. And isn't, sure, this, but, and isn't this but, any, how is this any different from just sociology in general, or, or even anthropology in general, right? Well-respected fields basically taken at face value in terms of their, their scientific integrity or their academic integrity, right? Like socialization is a real thing. Culturalization is a real thing. Anthropology is a real thing. And those are all embedded in group dynamics that would say that as an individual, you you are shaped and formed within the community, the broader culture, the religious institution, or lack thereof, that you actually, you know, move about and have your being in. So, like, once again, why is there this unique differentiation in this particular arena that is usually largely widely accepted as just kind of the norm in other fields of study in non-pejorative ways. I wanted to dive a little bit more into the way Josh just said it made a little bit more sense in terms of who I am is shaped by the country that I was born in, the fact that I am a male, the fact that I'm white, you know, my worldview is shaped in in a lot of ways that but it doesn't also define me either that's the question yeah is it determinate yeah because from what you just read it sounds like well because i'm a white male i am racist hate black people and am only looking out to do bad things yeah and i and i would say then i am an outlier yeah and i think that would be the argument against us is to say like the the concern is like okay it does seem inescapable that certainly historically uh, people's group identity, there were laws against them based on the color of skin, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the argument now would be to say, okay, well, those laws don't exist anymore. 
And so now it's like people are treated based on their, their individual life. And so quit trying to group everyone in these different groups. That's what's causing the problem. So I don't know if this is, well, I think it will be helpful, but maybe it's not. So say Chairman Marcus decides to move over to the land of Chairman Mao all of a sudden, right? He uproots his entire family and moves to mainland China. Are people going to say when he arrives, be like, oh, hey, look, it's Chairman Marcus Lane. Or are they going to say, hey, look, here's an American in the way he talks, the way he acts. Right. Right. Like they're That's not right. going to say, yeah. oh, hey, here's Marcus. They're going to be like, look at this American. Right. And we see that from everywhere. I mean, this isn't just unique to America, but it really is a pretty clear example in my mind, which is like, sure, Marcus is an individual. Vanessa is an, individu an individual. Jude and Della are individuals. Right. And yet when they when they are pulled out of that sociological context and are replaced or placed in a different one, right, or moved to a different one, they still carry that baggage with them. Their group identity comes with them. Their group identity comes yeah. with them. I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. So, like, once again, it's just sort of, I mean, it's de facto in a sense. And yet when, like, antagonists against critical race theory are saying, like, no, 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 that just simply doesn't hold true – but I would argue that it does in, in much broader levels than we're willing to admit or engage with. I mean, I would say, I mean, and I, and like where Shenvi is coming from, he's saying like that this, and, and I, I think he, he is, he has a point here is like, that this is like sort of against a Christian ethic to treat people based on group identity versus as individuals, like, that's yeah. like not Christian. Um, and I'd be like, yeah, that's, I mean, I think he has a point there. Well, to go to, um, to, go to Josh's thing, you're either sheep or goats. Like, Well, I mean, th the nuances, I, I actually like, I think this comes up quite regularly within Christian conversations, right? We like to quote St. Paul and say there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, and et cetera, et cetera, right? A stripping away of the individuality for group dynamic when it comes to the body of Christ. But we would always say like, no, but that doesn't erase me as Josh Woodrow. It doesn't erase me as a, as a white guy. It doesn't erase, erase me as an American, right? And yet at the same time, like you see within our own theology that it is the paradox of being both and. I am a Christian. I am in the body of Christ. So therefore I am necessarily associated with the group. It's not just convenient when I want it to be. That is my identity. Right. 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 But at the same time, I'm also an individual, have individualized experiences. Um, but I'm going to associate more so with the body of Christ than I am with, with Josh. But I'm not going to say either one can be eliminated or, or, or rent apart from me, that it comes part and parcel. And so therefore, we have to actually engage with who I am as an individual and who my people are. Right? Like as a Christian, I'm engrafted, at least biblically, I'm engrafted into Israel. I am not Jewish. You know what I'm saying? But yet I become part of this group dynamic simply because of the identity that comes through faith. Hmm. And I can't and I can't dissect that, otherwise I end up dissecting who I am as a child of God. When I would say, like, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like the only person who can truly deal with people as individuals like fully is God is God himself. 
right? It is God in Jesus who graciously deals with me, not on the basis of group identity, but as, as Marcus, the sinner. As, right. As, but that's, but that's where the church then can't lean to. And I, I forget Marcus, chairman Marcus, uh, who alluded to, right, uh, I think it was chairman Marcus who talked about the colorblind approach. Right. But like, that's where I, in my opinion, and in a lot of, I'll just say critical race theorists opinions that particularly Americans make the white Americans make the jump to then say, you know, Oh, but so then I'm just going to be colorblind and I'm not actually going to affirm your ethnic identity or your unique lived experiences at all. I'm just simply going to erase them because yeah, we'll just leave it up to God, right? God doesn't see color. So I don't see color when fundamentally that's actually unbiblical and inaccurate. So then let's move that actually, Josh, because that ties in next to the next premise that he highlights of critical race theory uh, that I think you you teed us up well for. Uh, so his premise number two is this, uh, oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through the exercise of hegemonic power. Oppressor groups subjugate oppressed groups through the exercise of hegemonic power. Hegemonic power is the ability to impose your group's values, expectations, and norms on the rest of society. That uh, also seems like nothing new from all of history. Yeah. I, and this is I something, like, I mean, on, on that same blog, as you kind of go a little bit further, like he, Shenvi himself affirms that this is, this is a thing that happens. Yeah. Well, so I think though, if we tie that into Josh's thing, right. Uh, because this ends up being like, how hegemonic power works like that it's not like i'll let me say this real quick so like in this way hegemonic power is distinguished from money or influence or mere numbers uh and then he quotes a critical theorist in any relationship between groups that define one another men women able-bodied disabled young old the dominant group is the group that is valued more highly dominant groups set the norms by which the minoritized group is judged and so if i line that up somewhat similar with what josh is saying in terms of people who are like well i'm just colorblind is it would seem to me that the critique of someone saying they're colorblind is them saying like, Hey, they're, they're setting the standard for what's normal. They're setting the standard for, for how we're supposed to see things. Uh, and so that's the issue is that they're determining that standard with an underlying premise of a complete and perfect balance of power. Right. Like right. to your point, Gabe, right? Like that, that's sort right. of what that is like, yeah, there actually isn't inequity or disparity in terms of the power dynamic. That right. we're all on the same playing field. And so therefore it's right. inappropriate to Because they fail to acknowledge the group identity. Correct. They assume that there's equity. Correct. Or equality. Equity gets real. People get all upset about that. Sure. But I under I understand and I agree with this argument around when we say I'm just colorblind or whatnot, right? But is there any room for acknowledgement that this is this is something whether right or wrong, but it's something that some people have said in the past with no harm intended. Like they really wanted to convey, I don't see you as less of a person. Yeah. You know, just yeah. because I say I like your shirt today doesn't mean I disliked your shirt yesterday because I didn't mention it. Yeah. But I, but I think it's much you more know? subliminal and subconscious, right, Tom? Like, let's just say let, let's just say once again to keep it to keep it within I, I, the biblical framework let's go to the roman empire right the norms of rome sort of were manifested across their empire 
you didn't have Romans. I mean, you certainly had Romans who like literally would poo-poo on Jews and other people groups, right? And to speak with disdain towards them and their cultural values or how they dress or how they act or speak, right? But mm -hmm. by and large, the assumption was kind of like, this is the best way. This is the right way. This is the Roman way. And that was an empire, right? And so I think for me and, and for, I would, I would think it'd be safe to bet that for many Christian critical race theorists is to say, we just need to be honest with ourselves and say, there's a little bit of Rome in us, right? That there's a little bit of oppressor in us. And that, that happened not because I was individually complicit in the development of that system, but I benefit from it and therefore I shouldn't like leverage it to my advantage with an either intentional or inadvertent disadvantage to my neighbor. Yes. All of the, all of that is true. I'm my only statement in that is that like, it sometimes feels like, and the same thing happened with the first person who said, Oh yeah, black lives matter. All lives matter. It's like, Oh, how can we make that to be better? How can we like, and that just says, okay, I, I'm just not going to say anything ever. And now, yeah. and now I'm now you're not doing enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was like, holy crap. I just, I, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. You know, this goes back to our funeral episode. I, I, you know, we could take the, Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss and make it into a huge theological racial thing that you weren't, you weren't, you you are now complicit in all deaths of the people because blah, you know like holy cow i just didn't know what to say you know and i'm trying to convey something yeah yeah i mean i think there's that like i think tom you're like raising a interesting and important point that like there's how do i put it like it, it's kind of similar like maybe i put it this way like it's like if we go back to josh's fish example like if i'm like that first day when I encounter a fish mm -hmm. that's on the, like, I'm like, oh man. And, and maybe it's like struggling and I'm like, oh, I'll get it back in the water. It'll be fine. You know, like, like I'm really invested in that fish. Like I'm not thinking about the groundwater. I like, I'm mm -hmm. encountering this individual fish. You know what I mean? Right. And, yeah. and I think there is something to that. And, that's and you threw it back in the water and someone said, why are you doing that? Well, it made a difference for that one. Um, right. Right. But, but, or they say, why'd you do that? Because the groundwater is toxic. You need to fix the groundwater. It's like, oh, okay. I just saw this fish and I wanted to do something about this fish. And so I think there is a place actually for both. I, I am. Yeah. Like, because, like, because I mean, to Josh's point, like we do need to like move down, down the road and realize like, Hey, you know what? Maybe that statement isn't helpful. Oh, oh, okay. I, I get that. But how about let's not jump like, let's not jump on somebody right away for something that like and and i think you know if we if we take this like back to race like this is actually again like kind of important that like in my relationships with like i don't know individual black people like if if i approach it as a white dude and be like oh you poor soul you know i just mm -hmm. your people have endured so much and like that's my posture is this sort of like paternalistic bs because i know that the groundwater is bad like that's not good. Like I actually in that moment should encounter them as an individual, mm -hmm. I think. Right. Right. You know, because otherwise it's dehumanizing. I mean, like, and that's actually the problem when you go too far into this is you take away the, the moral agency of di distinct individuals. Right. Like you can but, fall off this in two ways. Yes, correct. But I would say that 
to to real where the rubber hits the road in this particular point, right? In the in um in the blog post, I forget the dude's name, right? But like Neil Shendi. Yes. Uh, in this Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter, right? The particular rubber meets the road when you, in that exact situation, which I think was articulated so well, where that, your your black friend says, hey, Gabe, this has been happening to my family for generations. And you say, yeah, well, it's been happening to everyone. You know, all lives matter. Everyone suffers, right? Right. That's where then it, it then right. transgresses yeah. right. and says, well, now I'm not willing to actually like acknowledge those things but to simply overlook them because it brings discomfort or like i don't want to confront the history or you know whatever other excuse that would be levied in that particular scenario well and, and the other thing too with the like i don't see color thing um my sister-in-law talked about this who is who is venezuelan and she's like i don't want to be like part of my identity is that I am Venezuelan, that I am Latina. And then, and that is a special part of, of who I am. And so I don't, you know, that everyone's the same color. No, that we aren't. And that's part of what should make us unique and beautiful and great. But we have made it into something that is bad and good or worse than less than, or whatever. You know, and I also think just to this point, and I'll, I'll be done talking about this, but like, you know, when we're talking about theology, right, particularly Christian theology, we have something called the scandal of particularity, which is that some are saved and others aren't through specifically the avenue of the cross. So as a Christian, I would have to be really honest with myself. If I were to go to Pastor Gabe and say, you know what, Gabe, I feel like I've come to know Christ and I want to be baptized, right? I want to be saved. And you said, hey, that's great, Josh, uh, but, and you listed off a number of people or an entire people group that didn't believe in Christ, and we're just like, yeah, you know, and they're cool too. Like, that would cheapen the experience for me, right? That would cheapen the significance of, of what I've come to experience, you know, in a sense where it's like, you're willing to overlook or override this this actual individualized encounter or individualized experience that i have um right. at like a, a larger scale just sort of dismissal of that individualism towards groupthink so it's actually doing the exact opposite that those who would be opponents of critical race theory would actually accuse it of doing all right friends well here ends episode one or part one of our conversation on critical race theory we hope you stay tuned for part two